Now that's the word that every parent dreams of hearing the first time. Yes. Doesn't every parent dream of their child saying that the first time? I want to hear just, yes, dad, every time. But is that what happens? Not most of the time. It's second, third, maybe fifth time down the road with a little bit of uh, intervention in between. But doesn't that mirror us with God? Doesn't God delight in hearing our yes the first time? Just like with Jonah, yes, Lord, I'm going. And it was instead a no, I'm going to throw a temper tantrum and go the wrong way. And, and this is so much like us with the Lord. God wants to hear our yes the first time. And uh, what a thing for us to sometimes have to go through learning, just like Jonah, the hard way to say yes to the Lord. I'm excited to get into this passage this morning, so would you bow with me once more as we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is living and active. It is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's here for us today. Lord, I pray that through this word, our view of you, our concept of you, would grow as a result. That if we came here this morning in any way thinking of you as distant from our lives, as being small in any sort of a way, or being unable to help us with whatever we're dealing with, whatever we're going through, or or even feeling like whatever you've called us to, you won't be able to deliver. I pray, Lord, that you would shatter those false notions and beliefs within us. I pray, God, that our view of you would grow exponentially here as we hear from your word, as we look again at the life of, of Joshua. And as we see the powerful way that you intervened over and over again, may we see that same power at work in our own lives and present for us here today. Pray through, I pray that you would speak through me, your servant, and may the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So with that as the preface this morning, I want to I ask you a question for your consideration as we begin. How big is your God? The God that you came here to worship this morning, how big is he? Or rather, another way of putting it is, what is your concept of God? How big is he in your thinking? Is he this God who right now, this morning, you can't even begin to fathom how how big he is, how near he is, and just overwhelmed that he is here for you? Or rather, does he in some way seem insignificant or small or distant from you? You see, our concept of God will directly impact every aspect of our relationship with him, how we live out our faith, and even it will affect how we pray. Now, one of the things that I love about uh, children's books, being a dad, I get to read a lot of children's books, is that they often simplify some really large concepts. And I found this children's book rather helpful with explaining what I'm trying to get at this morning. So this book, some of you may have read, is called, Is a Blue Whale the Biggest Thing There Is? So, there's the, there's the question for you. Is a blue whale the biggest thing there is? Now, has anyone here seen a blue whale in person, like swimming in the ocean or, or somewhere? Yeah, probably none of us have. But all of us know that a blue whale is the biggest mammal that we know of ever existed. It, it's absolutely huge in the, in the animal kingdom, even bigger than the biggest dinosaur bones that have been discovered. And so we ask the question, well, it's the biggest mammal that we know of, the biggest living creature, 
Um, a blue whale, we'll, we'll just run through this here. It can grow to be 30 meters long and weigh as much as 20 elephants. Okay, so it's pretty big, right? 20 elephants. Um, but in comparison with Mount Everest, a blue whale is rather insignificant and rather small, isn't it? Mount Everest is the biggest mountain on earth. We know it's the tallest place. Mountain climbers dream about climbing to the summit to be on top of the world. Mount Everest is giant. But in comparison to the size of the earth itself, Mount Everest is just an anthill. It's tiny, right? It's, it's insignificant. When you look at the earth, you can't even, well, we're not looking at Asia, but you can even really hardly pick out Mount Everest on the earth as a whole. It's not all that big. And so, one million of our earths, however, as big as our earth is, one million of our earths would fit inside our sun. Okay? So if you think the earth is big, one million of our earths, if you package them all together, could fit inside the sun and they wouldn't even be touching the sides. That's how big our, our sun is. However, our sun, as gigantic as that is, approximately 93 million miles away, it's only a medium-sized star. Ruben talked about the stars at the outset. And over 50 million of our suns, 50 million, a big number that I can't really quite grasp already, 50 million of our suns would fit inside the superstar Antares. Okay? So our sun is huge, but 50 million of them could fit inside the biggest star that we know of. All right? Now, this is getting to the point where your mind just kind of can't get it anymore, right? It, it's so big. It's so vast. And yet, that's just a speck in the night sky. A speck in the night sky. Billions of stars, including Antares and our sun, make up our galaxy, the Milky Way. Right? The Milky Way itself, our own galaxy, boggles the mind in how vast it is, how many stars there are, how many planets there are. It's simply my mind can't even begin to wrap around the concept of our own galaxy, how big it is. But the Milky Way is only one galaxy. And the universe contains, as Ruben mentioned, an infinite number of galaxies that we can't even begin to quantify. The numbers are so large that they, they just put bunch of zeros and then square them and say, like, this is how far we've guessed to this point. But basically, we don't know how many galaxies there are in the universe. Multiply that by how many planets and stars are within each galaxy. It's, again, mind-boggling. I can't even get past the whole, like, how many Earths fit in the sun concept, and yet we're getting even bigger, right? So our, our, our universe, how big it is, it it's beyond human capability to comprehend how big it is. But then we consider this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Okay, so this is even further out than just what the planets are. God's glory stretches even further if we can get there with our minds. And the psalmist writes, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Think about how big they are. He did this with his fingers. It was an artwork project, right? It's just painting, fingers, here, there. When I consider the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Incredible to think about the size of our universe and then a God who's working on it with his fingers. And he is bigger still. And so think about this, my friends. Our creator of this unimaginably 
big universe is bigger still. And he is present everywhere and beyond what he has made. He is Alpha and Omega, here before the universe began, will be here after the universe ends. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. And here's the most incredible thing of all when we consider all of this, is the same thing that blew David's mind. What is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, my friends, the whole of Scripture points to the single fact that God is not only mindful of man, God is infinitely in love with mankind, infinitely, desperately in love with us to the point where he has set everything in such a way that it centers around us and all of his plans and all of his creation points to his infinite care for us, his children, and that he has done everything in his power, his Remember, significant power to bring us to himself into a relationship with him, our creator. And so he's done this not only from a distance, but he has drawn near to care for us intimately and even acted miraculously on our behalf. And now we've been seeing throughout the course of our study in Joshua how God has been intervening on behalf of Israel over and over again. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me in today's study to Joshua chapter 10. And there we see another stunning example of God working in a powerful, gigantic way on behalf of those who have a faith big enough to believe him for it. So Joshua chapter 10. Building off of last week's story with the Gibeonites, the first thing we see in this text is that our God is big enough to keep his covenants. Our God is big enough to keep his covenants. Now, you will remember from last week that the Gibeonites had deceived their way into a peace treaty with Israel, thus saving their own lives. However, we read in Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, that when Adonijah Zedek, the Amorite king of Jerusalem, heard about this treaty, he viewed the Gibeonites, Gibeonites as traitors and now a threat to him and the rest of the Canaanites. And so they decided they need to be eliminated. And so this king rallies the other four Amorite kings of the hill country to join forces with him, and together their five armies would combine to lay siege against the city of Gibeon and attack it. So then in verse 6, we read this. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us, help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. And so now here's the test. What would Joshua do? What would he do? Let me ask you, what would you have done? Remember the backstory here. Remember the backstory. By God's original command, the Gibeonites were slated for destruction. Remember, they were under the same judgment as all the other Canaanites. God had explicitly said multiple times, you must wipe them out, make no peace treaties with them, do not leave any survivors, wipe them out. The Gibeonites were slated for destruction. However, what had they done? They had used lies and deceit to trick Joshua into signing a peace treaty with them. So here's Joshua now, the very people who just maybe weeks earlier had deceived him, tricked him. 
And now it's a golden opportunity to say, oh, everyone's coming to destroy you and I don't have to do it. How tempting mustn't it have been for Joshua to say, sorry, can't help you, you're on your own. He could have even thought to himself, maybe this is God's provision. They're getting what their deceit deserves. Human thinking might have gone that way. In fact, maybe some of Joshua's other leaders were thinking these exact thoughts. This was a way to get out of that rash covenant that they'd been tricked into making. But did Joshua think that way? Did Joshua even entertain these thoughts? Well, the text indicates no. No, Joshua did not think this way. And we have to ask the question, why? Why didn't Joshua think this way? I believe the answer is this, is because Joshua served a big covenant-keeping God. You see, Joshua served a God that he knew never lies. He knew that he served a God who always keeps his word, always keeps his covenants. He had kept his covenant promise to Abraham to make his descendants into a great nation. And then, despite their near-constant rebellion, God had kept his word to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt. He had kept his word to bring them safely into the promised land upon which they were now standing. And in addition, Joshua undoubtedly remembered the Lord's commands given through, Mo- through Moses way back in Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2. That instruction had been this. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Now, this command from the Lord did not have an asterisk beside it where it said, here are the exceptions to the command. It didn't say the exceptions to the command being that if you've been tricked into giving your word, that now it's null and void. No, it just said, if you have made a vow to the Lord, if you have made a pledge, keep your word. Do not break it. So Joshua is thinking all these things as the Gibeonites come to him. He knows God does not lie or break his covenants, even with a deceitful and sin-stained people. And so God calls his children, his followers, to be the same, to do the same. And Joshua served a big God who never breaks his word. And so Joshua wasn't about to either. And verse 7 tells us that Joshua immediately takes his entire army and marches to Gibeon's rescue. So let me ask you a question. How big is your God? When it comes to keeping your word, when it comes to keeping your commitments, when you have made a pledge, how big is your God? Do you seek to be like him by keeping your word and honoring your commitments, your pledges? Even, perhaps, when others aren't honoring their word or commitment to you, are you still seeking to be like your God, to keep your word, to be someone who is known like the Lord, to not lie, but to keep their word? And so, this is what Joshua does. He seeks to be like his God. Now, let me be the first to say this isn't easy. When we've been tricked by someone else and we've been deceived by someone else, our first inclination, our first reaction is to want to do likewise back to them, to give them some of their own medicine, right? But this is not what God calls his children to do or to be like. Jesus, of course, took this to the next level. 
when he talked about loving our enemies, doing good to those who persecute us, not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but to reply with a blessing to insults. This is what God has called us his children to, and we see this exemplified in Joshua. He honors his covenant just as God is a covenant-keeping God. Number two we see in this passage, our God is big enough to fight our battles for us. Verse 8 continues. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. And so, armed with the command and promise of the Lord, Joshua marched his army the 25 miles from Gilgal to Gibeon through the night under the cover of darkness. A forced march, if you will. Now, by comparison, we just throw those numbers out there, but let me just give you a comparison. 25 miles is a little bit further than from here to Boisevain. So think about just getting up, you know, 10 o'clock in the evening and saying, I'm just going to march on down to Boisevain through the night. Then on top of that, say, I'm going to do that in sandals, wearing armor on my back, carrying swords and spears. Oh, and wait, here to Boisevain is flat. Where they were going was uphill through rugged terrain through the Judean hills. Very rugged, very harsh terrain. And so they do this in approximately 8 to 10 hours. 25 miles, armed for battle through rugged terrain. Now, I don't know if this was just because these guys were in such great shape from battle or if God just supernaturally gave them a little lift in their step that night, but this is an incredible pace to make it through the dark. But nonetheless, they do it. They cover the distance, and so at morning's first light, they catch the Amorites completely by surprise. They have no inkling that the Israelites are coming. They can't even imagine them getting there that quickly. And so at morning light, they're rubbing their eyes and they look up and they see the Israelite army descending on them. Verse 10 says, The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. They wake up, they rub their eyes, and they freak out. They go into full panic mode. We continue. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Haran and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Haran to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. And more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Now I want you to take note here that it was not Israel itself, not Joshua and his soldiers, but the Lord who threw the Amorites into confusion. And then the text says it was the Lord, not Joshua, who hurled hailstones down on them, killing more Amorites that day than all the Israelite soldiers combined. So just think of Joshua and the army. As this is all happening in front of them, their enemies, this massive army, five armies combined into one, vastly outnumbering the Israelites, they are being mowed down, cut down before them, and they are in full flight. And the Israelites are routing them. And then on top of that, they see suddenly large hailstones. Now, I've seen pictures of some hailstones as big as basketballs. You know, we we have the kids video where they kind of box them on the head and we all laugh. Yeah, that's just the plight version of it. I'm thinking people were getting, these soldiers were getting crushed by basketball-sized hail. And incredibly, as these hailstones are pelting them, killing more of them than even the Israelites had killed, incredibly, none of the Israelites are being hit by this hail. Think about that. Like, 
Yeah, yeah, there might have been a front or something, and it was that way, but still, the Israelites, they're not being hit by this hail. Only the Amorites are being cut down. So just imagine, as this is happening, the excitement that they must have felt at realizing that God of heaven, their creator, was fighting for them. God was fighting for them. He wasn't just a passive you know, bystander. He was a participant in this battle, actually fighting for them. You see, God was not distant or detached. He was near and engaged in winning the battle on their behalf. And so too, every child of God... Every child of God has been in spiritual battle. Every one of us. If you've come to Christ in faith, you've asked him to forgive your sins, to become your savior, you've been in spiritual battle since then. Every last one of us has. The enemy will come to test our faith. He will come to discourage us. He comes to try to blunt our witness, to keep us from living for the Lord, and if possible, to even pull us entirely away from him. You have felt that struggle. You know it's real. At some point, you have been wounded by the enemy. At some point, you've been beat up by circumstances. At some point, you've been wearied by obligations. Oh, Lord, do I have to? And it gets heavy. You've been in these fights. But listen, in all of those things, you're not fighting alone. God is fighting for you. Doesn't that change things? When you're in that battle, when you're in that fight against the enemy, to remember, you're not in this alone. God is fighting for you. For consider, if God were not still fighting for us actively the way that he fought actively for Joshua and Israel, if he were not still doing that, sin and Satan would have overwhelmed and defeated us a long time ago. For the fact is that Satan has thrown everything in the kitchen sink against God's children and the church ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. And yet, not only has the church survived all of those onslaughts over the last 2,000 years. The church has thrived. The church has flourished and it has grown. The gospel of Jesus Christ is reaching more people today than ever before in history. Ever before, the gospel of Jesus Christ is reaching the far corners of the earth, just as Jesus said it would, that before the end came, this gospel shall be preached in every nation, to every tongue, to every tribe. And this is happening, my friends. The work isn't done yet, but it is happening. It is in progress. And so 2,000 years and counting after our Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, his words are still ringing true. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So my friends, God is still fighting for his children, for his church, more than we even know. And I believe, I truly believe this, that part of the wonder of heaven when we arrive, in addition to all of the wonders of heaven, one of them is going to be when it's revealed to us just how much God fought for us in this life. Just how much God protected us in this life, even won major battles on our behalf that we knew nothing about at the time. I think what's just going to blow us away We're going to look back and we're going to think, yeah, I I, I know I was feeling this at that time, but we had no clue of what was really going on where God was fighting for us in the spiritual realm. And so as we look back, God was big enough to fight for Joshua. And he's still big enough to fight for us today, whatever our battle is. 
He is fighting for us. The third thing we see in this text is that our God is big enough to create the sun, and therefore our God is big enough to stop the sun. Now, I want you to picture the sight that must have been for Joshua. As he crested the ridge and he looks down on the armies, and before him, as far as the eyes could see, are the masses of panicked Amorite soldiers being pursued by his men. And as he's watching this, he knows the victory is within grasp. And then over the battlefield, there's those clouds hurling down hailstones upon the enemy. And, and Joshua is realizing two things as this is unfolding before him. First, he realizes that he has a golden opportunity to destroy the Amorite confederacy entirely, to just break its back, eradicate it from the land. And secondly, he realizes that there's not enough daylight left to achieve a total victory. He knows that where the sun is, how much time is left in the day, some of the Amorites are going to escape. Some of them are going to get away. Now, at this point, most commanders would have been content. They would have said, that's a good day's work. We, we've slaughtered our enemies before us. We've sent them running. You know, let's just call it a day. Let's pack our, you know, pack our things up. And, and we're going to call that a stunning victory. Most leaders would have been content, but not Joshua. Joshua, in this moment, is suddenly struck by inspiration where who knows where that came from. But in verse 12, Joshua proceeds to pray one of the single boldest prayers ever prayed in history. Let's read verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord, in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the, nations, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Now, of course, skeptics love to make fun of this story. It's in there with the one we watched earlier of, of saying that's impossible. A, a, a big fish or a whale couldn't swallow a man. That's just folklore. It's, it's a fairy tale. And this is one of those. You know, scientifically, the sun can't stand still. This is impossible. And so, therefore, it, it just can't have happened. Still, other skeptics will try to explain this away as some sort of a natural phenomena where the light refracted. And in, and in fact, light refraction is a real thing where under the perfect set of circumstances, daylight can continue to shine for a period of time after sunset, refracting off of the clouds at high altitudes. So the conditions have to be just right and it can elongate the, the onset of nightfall. However, that explanation doesn't fit the text because the text explicitly states the sun stopped in the middle of the sky. This wasn't just glowing. They're looking at the sun and it's stopped in the middle of the sky. Then it delays going down, it says, about a full day. And the full day would indicate a period of at least 12 hours. And so 12 hours beyond the regular time of sunset, the sun is still in the middle of the sky. Light refraction could simply not even come close to explaining this. 
And, of course, other skeptics will say things like, well, if this really happened, this would be a major historical event. So you'd think someone would have mentioned this in the annals of history other than just the Bible. Well, as a matter of fact, there are other historical records of this event. Almost every ancient culture in the world has a record of a worldwide flood. So, too, almost every ancient culture in the world has a record of an extra-long day or an extra-long night. Records of the Chinese during the reign of Emperor Yo, who lived in Joshua's day, report the strange occurrence of an extra-long day. Herodotus, a Greek historian, wrote an account of an extra-long day left by the Egyptians. Others cite records of the Aztecs in Mexico reporting the sun standing still in a year denoted as seven rabbits. That is the same year that other historical records show Joshua defeating the Philistines and conquering Canaan. Still other cultures, the Incas, Babylonians, Greeks, Persians, Polynesians, some refer to the sun standing still, others call it an extra-long night. Now, of course, the extra-long night would be as if you were on the other side of the world, right? It's nighttime, and where's the sun? Why isn't it coming up? And so, the historical record agrees with the biblical record. There was a singular day in history unlike any other before or since, a day that the sun stood still. Now, of course, our modern scientific minds demand to know, how did this happen? And our modern scientific minds, because we can't prove something or repeat it through, through scientific experiment, it rebels and says, well, then it can't have happened in history. And yet, if the evidence shows that something like this did happen in history, God's word declares that it did, in fact, happen in history. Of course, we want to know, how did you do it? How did you do this, Lord? And here's my answer for you. I don't know. I don't. You know, the important thing here is not how he did it. The fact is, he did it, right? Ask me how God created the sun. Well, I know he did it with his words, but how? I don't know. And just the same way, I don't know how he made the sun in the first place. I don't know how he stopped it. All I know is he is capable of it. And if he said he did it, then he did for just as God is big enough to create the sun, he is big enough to stop it in place. And he's big enough to keep it going again. In fact, you know what? God could have stopped the earth's rotation to make it appear that the sun stood still. Or he could have stopped the motion of the entire universe if he wanted to. Or he could have caused the sun to go backwards in the sky. He could have done that too. Anything that he chose to do he is capable of doing. The bottom line is this. God is big enough to have done it in any manner that he saw fit. For can't a clockmaker stop his clock if he wants to? Can't he then restart it and set it off once more? Of course he can. He is the creator. And so too is our Lord. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is there anything too difficult for me? It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> the answer is no. There is nothing too difficult for our God. Now, as incredible as this is, what I find most fascinating in this story, as fascinating as it is that the sun stopped in the sky, what I find more fascinating is how in the world did Joshua even think of this idea? Really, how does it even cross his mind to ask God to stop the sun in the sky? 
Just think about this. Somewhere in Joshua's mind, he had to first think of this crazy idea. And then second, he had to believe that this crazy idea, this utterly impossible idea, was not only possible, but doable with his Lord. And third, he then had to have the faith and the boldness to then say, God, do this for me. So, where did Joshua's crazy vision, his belief, his faith, his boldness, where did this come from? Well, I believe it came from a lifetime of walking closely with his mighty, miracle-working God. And so Joshua wasn't afraid to ask his big God for big things, because he knew how big he really was. And so, the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Joshua's faith was big enough to ask, is ours. Is our faith big enough to ask our big God for big things? Verse 14 tells us the significance of this event. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Now I want you to take note that what makes this event so unique in God's perspective is not that the sun stopped in the sky. What's so unique is that God listened to the voice of a man to suspend the laws of nature. That's what made this so unique. That alone is what makes it so significant. So let me ask you, if you think back over your life, what is the biggest, boldest prayer that you've ever prayed in your whole life? What is it? Can you think back? It's the biggest thing you've ever asked God for. Now, sometimes we ask for big things and God doesn't do it because he knows that's not a good idea. And so asking, of course, has to be in accordance with the Lord's will. But nonetheless, as we walk with the Lord, when we ask things in his name and in his will, God will do things beyond what we even imagine. Now, I know that we pray about the weather all the time, right? We're a farming community. We pray about the weather. But let me just ask you, have any of your prayers ever involved halting interplanetary orbits of the earth and moon around the sun? Has anyone ever put that on your prayer list? Lord, I would like you to suspend the lunar schedule in such a manner. No, we don't pray that way. We don't ask for those kinds of things. And yet, here's something out of all of this I want you to take away. The size of our prayers, very often, The size of our prayers is a great way to identify our concept of God. How big our prayers are indicates how big we believe our God is. And it mirrors what we believe he's capable of. The story is told about 12 years after this man graduated from Princeton. Donald Gray Barnhouse was invited to preach in Princeton's chapel service. This was back when they still had them. When he arrived, he noticed that his old Hebrew professor by the name of Robert Dick Wilson, he had taken a place right in the front row to hear him preach. And when the service was over, his old Hebrew professor came up to Barnhouse and he said to him, If you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. Oh. But then he continued, I only come once. I'm glad to see that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I only come one time to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what size their ministry will be. Well, this confused Barnhouse, and so he asked him to explain, and the professor replied, Well, you see, some men have a little god. Their little god can't do any miracles. 
He can't take care of the inspiration of scriptures. He can't take care of their preservations and transmissions to us. We're constantly explaining it away. They have a little God. I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great big God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. You, I see, have a great big God, and I know he will bless your ministry. So let me ask you again, how big is your God? How big is your faith? Chances are, if you're like me, you're going to say something like, not big enough. But thankfully, our Lord Jesus addresses this exact problem with his own disciples in Matthew 17. He said to them in verse 20, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here and be cast into the sea, and it will be so. And nothing will be impossible for you. And so here's the beautiful thing about faith. It's not the size of our faith that will stop the sun in the sky or throw mountains into the sea, or even save a single soul. It's not the size of our faith that will do that. It's the size of our God who that faith is directed towards. You see, even mustard seed-sized faith, as small as it is, if it's directed towards the big God of the universe, can do incredible things that we can't even begin to imagine. And therefore, Jesus says, even mustard seed-sized faith can move mountains. Now, it's easy to think of Joshua, of course, as a super saint with a giant faith that we could only dream of of having, and so this has no bearing on my life. I'll just leave here, and that was an interesting story, but it doesn't change anything for me. We can leave here today thinking that way. But here's the reality about Joshua. He was just a regular guy with a healthy concept of how big his God really is. And so, while Joshua's long day was a miraculous event which has not been repeated, God still hears and responds to the voice of man. He still responds to the cry of need, and he intervenes on behalf of his children. And that includes you and me. Just before VE Day of World War II, a soldier named Joel writes, wrote to his mother in New Jersey about the miraculous deliverance of his platoon. He writes, our outfit has been taken off the army's secret list, so now you will hear of our activities. We are a part of the third army under General Patton. My platoon has been working mostly in observation and a few patrols. One of my best buddies, Tom, with his whole platoon, was pinned down by German mortar and artillery fire. They were given the order to move, but couldn't because the Germans had full view of them from the hill and were zeroing their fire in on them perfectly. Now, Tom is the most conscientious Christian boy I've ever met. He knew something had to be done to save the 50 men. They were pinned down, being cut down, and through that fire he crawled from his foxhole and looked things over. Seeing how bad things were, he lay down behind a tree and began to earnestly pray to God to help them from this situation. This is all true, Mother. I'm not making this up. After he prayed, a fog rolled down between the two hills And the whole platoon got out of their foxholes and escaped unscathed. They reorganized in a little town behind the lines where there was a church building. Then all went in and knelt down to pray and thank the Lord. Then they asked that kid to take the service. 
This is all true, Ma, and it just shows how much prayer can mean. If that wasn't an answer to prayer, I don't know what is. Now, my friends, it should excite you It should excite me to realize that the same God who heard Joshua's prayer and responded is the same God who is listening to our prayers today. And he's still standing ready to help us overcome and to win our battles. So let me ask in closing, how big is your God? How big is your concept of God? What do you believe that he is capable of doing on your behalf? And if you're afraid to ask, let me encourage you with the words of the Lord Jesus who said, you have not because you ask not. And so ask your father, ask him, because he stands ready to answer in mighty ways to those who have the faith and the boldness like Joshua to ask our big God to do big things. Amen. Heavenly Father, your greatness, which fills this universe, overwhelms us. You are bigger and stronger and more awesome in power than we could ever begin to wrap our minds around. That you could hang the sun, the moon, the stars in space and then even stop them because a man asked you to. This is incredible to me. And yet, Lord, what's even more incredible is that you would do miracles on our behalf. That you would intervene directly for those who have the faith to ask you, even with mustard seed-sized faith, to ask you, our big and great God, to do big and great things on behalf of your children. And so, Father, today I pray that you would encourage each one of us from your word and by your spirit to increase our faith to ask you, our great God and Father, to do incredible things in our lives, to bring about deliverance and salvation for those who are in bondage, that you would set the captives free, even here in our town of Killarney, that you would send renewal to your church, revival to this land, and that, Lord Jesus, you would reign over Canada, that you would reign over the nations of this earth. And we pray this in your name and in your will. Amen.